This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Today's seminar is brought to you by the letters ATSNT, which stands for the Admissions Test and Special Testing Unit, which is the new name for the new Developments Division. Um, and it's located in the Assessment, Research and Development Group at Cambridge Assessment. And the session's actually been coordinated by Sarah. Sarah's done a lot of work on this seminar, so thanks to you, Sarah. Uh, the topic of the seminar is competitive admissions to higher education. And that's a passion of the ATST division because they're responsible for a number of admissions tests, including the BMAT, the Biomedical Admissions Test, the ELAT, the English Literature Admissions Test. This is a test for me, isn't it? Uh, the STEP test in mathematics, which is the... Uh, oh, I've forgotten that one. The, the six-term examination paper. And finally, the TSA, the Thinking Skills Assessment. Uh, the format for today's seminar is slightly different from normal. Normally we just have one speaker, but this time we've got three. Uh, so Tim's going to kick us off, um, and he's going to uh, begin by setting the context um, to this seminar. And then we're going to move on to Janet Graham. Uh, very glad that Janet could make it here today, because she was very unwell at the beginning of the week, and she's still suffering a bit today, so we're hoping she'll make it through. She's going to be talking about current issues, um, current practice in higher uh, uh, education admissions. And then we're going to uh, follow on uh, with a presentation from Robert Wilkins, who I understand is also feeling a little bit under the weather. <laughs> so hopefully we'll make it through today with some content. Um, and he's going to outline the admissions process uh, that occurs for medicine at Oxford. Um, we should still have time for discussion at the end. Uh, we're going to be finishing by five o'clock, but we should still have time for discussion, which would be good. But I would ask that we reserve the questions till the discussion period at the end. So we'll go straight through with the speakers. Okay, so without further ado, I'd like to welcome and to introduce you Tim Oates. Tim is the is a group director at Cambridge Assessment and he's the head of the Assessment Research and Development Group. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much indeed, Paul. And since I'm recovering from pneumonia, I can, all I can think is that admissions testing makes you prone to infectious diseases. So, welcome. Um, OK, um, I'm going to run through some contextual things, and at some points it's going to be very patronising to those of you who are uh, immersed in the day-to-day -day business of admissions and also have been involved in policy associated with admissions, but it's nonetheless worthwhile covering some of the old ground to remind ourselves of the national and international context for admissions. Um, I mean, seminars of this kind are really testimony to the extent to which we're professionalising admissions, I think, collectively. We are looking in a much more sophisticated way at the behaviour of the instruments that we use for admissions uh, and at the, the nature of the processes which are deployed in admissions decisions. I've titled it this. I mean, I'm going to look at overall context and then just look at our own admissions test briefly um, and uh, deal with some... Uh, some of the misconceptions around the, the density of, of dedicated admissions tests which exist in the system, again, with the intention of informing the overall national context. Um, so the context in which admissions tests operate, I mean, it's remarkable, uh, the lack of sophistication of discussion of American admissions still. Um, outside of America, people just talk about the SAT. Um, but we know that... Um, Admission to American universities is, is a complex decision-making process uh, which involves at least those five components, grade point averages, the SAT, uh, references, a letter of recommendation, often very powerful in the American context. Advanced placement is gaining ground dramatically in the States. 
which essentially is you know, a curriculum-based examination, an analogue of A-levels in many regards. And if there's a big battle for the heart of American education at the moment at the advanced level, it's actually between the advanced placement and the IB. So areas like Texas, for example, are going to, towards the IB. And, and, and rumour has it that they're, they're, they're more favourably disposed towards an international qualification because that's, that's far, far more preferable than getting anything that comes out of that horrendous place, Washington. Um, and, of course, access arrangements have played a, a vital role in the American setting. Now, in the UK, if we look at it in a bit more detail, we have all of those elements um, jockeying for position in terms of what could and can and could be used for making a decision. We're not looking here at anything which could constitute a magic bullet. Um, what are we about when we're trying to select people? Well, various things. We're often trying to find the people who will sustain the course, be sustained through it, will complete it. Completion is absolutely critical. Those who will do well in the course in terms of uh, their, their outcomes and therefore do well by the institution in which they're, they're studying. And that, that's kind of their learning as a credit for the institution. And then, of course, their learning as a benefit for themselves and benefit for society and the economy. There are very sophisticated issues at stake. And the distinction between recruiting and selecting universities is critical. Again, the press talks as if there is a sharp divide between recruiting and selecting institutions, whereas, in fact, we have to look at this surely on a departmental basis. Um, there are some selecting uh, uh, departments in some of the um, uh, highest, in, in, in the most dominantly recruiting uh, institutions and so on. Um, and we've seen the ebb and flow of certain uh, instruments. Uh, AEA, of course, is the Advanced Extension Award, was originally seen as something which would ride to the rescue of top-end differentiation. Um, but is a, a, a test for which you have to make a decision to enter. And that decision is made by both the school and the young person. And therefore, that in, did introduce all sorts of inequities into the system because less organised schools didn't even know the existence of the AEA, let alone that they should enter... Uh, they're most able for it. Um, that was why my heart was more in the provision of the A-star rather than using the AEA, because at least if you're sitting in A-level, you would get access to the A-star, which would not be true of the AEA. Um, we have 17% um, now at, at three A's. That's gone up from 7% 10 years ago. Uh, stretch and Challenge has been introduced, which has been changed the form of items or mark schemes or both in the majority of A-levels but has been implemented in different ways in different A-levels, in different subjects. Um, and many people forget that 20% get through clearing. Uh, that figure, of course, has been reducing over time. Um, although, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the kind of patterns that we've now seen in terms of rising societal expectations of HE, but with dramatically reduced numbers uh, of places available. And, and the growing tradition that started during the 1970s of gaining access to higher education through access arrangements and frequent, frequently gaining access to higher education on sub-degree programmes, but then converting once you were there. You, you know an awful lot about your students if they've already gone through an access course uh, with, an inst with your institution or an institution closely affiliated with you, with staff members who've seen them over a long period of time. And uh, you will have had them within your walls for a period of time before they convert to um, an undergraduate honours degree uh, course. So, you know, these are very different types of means of observing 
the capacities and achievements of people before you make a selection decision for them to go on to a, 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 a three-year undergraduate honours degree. And then we have all the issues about gap years. And in many ways, what we're talking about these days is orientation rather than immediate entry and progression, where people are making uh, far more uh, judicious decisions about where they want to be and what they want to progress on to. Um, and they're using some of these tests as, as feedback. So what we had, of course, were the Schwartz recommendations of 2004, where, in essence, the, the, the most salient recommendation was the provision of a single university entrance test. And it just escapes me why people... Uh, we've returned to that in, of course, the recommendations of the Sykes report. It just escapes me where people think, well, if you were to put everybody onto a single scale, um, everybody of, of all abilities... Uh, onto a single scale, uh, then we'd solve the problem. Um, undoubtedly, what we would have then is, is a very large population uh, on the very scores, uh, all with the same score, uh, the, the population that we would actually seek to differentiate. Um, highly problematic. Um, so the whole process of using multiple evidence from a variety of sources and making a complex decision, I still think is the right way forward. But the critical thing is to have that process well-informed, judiciously operated, and transparent. But, of course, therein lies a tremendous challenge. Uh, we did have a trial of the US SAT. Many people thought it was a, an anglicised SAT. It wasn't. Only, only a couple of items were removed. Um, and, of course, that, that, that faded quite quickly. Um, I will deal with the Nuffield Review's um, perceptions that there is unfettered growth of uh, emissions tests, often uh, institutionally devised tests. I'll come on to those, in just, those data in just a second. Uh, we tried to uh, develop a, a generic test, the Unitest. Uh, that was done in conjunction with ACER in Australia. And, and the summary of a great deal of work, both development and marketing work, was that really is no market for a single test in this country at the current time. And then, as I, I said, one of the key recommendations of Sykes was to revisit, I think, and it's a misplaced recommendation and not uh, technically well-grounded, that, that a single emissions test would do the job. This is just to show you we've done, done the work in terms of identifying what there is. Those are the tests developed by testing bodies. These are the institution's own tests. Got listening to those. These are the ones that we do, uh, BMAT, TSA, ELAT, STEP, <coughs> and at the bottom, uh, Unitest. Those are the numbers. And, of course, you'll have the slides, so if you're interested in these numbers, you can access them. But critically, um, SPA, Janet Graham and colleagues in 2009, um, continued to do their very effective tally of the number of independent admissions tests which exist, uh, including those um, sort of generic tests uh, which exist, not generic, those tests like BMAT across the subject area administered by assessment agency four courses in more than one institution, as opposed to those tests which are developed by courses within institutions. The thing is that people get the volume wrong, I think, and the number of tests, um, and, and, and their volume in the system, and their influence in the system, and they get the trend wrong. So, it's, I mean, Janet and I discussed this a number of years ago, and we, we kind of developed, I think, the most incisive um, quantification of those tests, and, and they're used by about 1%, about 0.7% of the 48,000 courses currently in the UCAS scheme. And, and the percentage figure 
does not change dramatically year on year. It has seen some increase, um, but uh, Janet and colleagues and we feel that that's essentially down to uh, greater transparency and more people coming forward actually recording tests which they do and have used in the past in the SPAR survey. And so the increase in numbers is not due to a genuine underlying increase in the number, just better recording. But, but that's where I think, if, if those of you were students of the 14 to 19 review, that's where the 14 to 19 review got it wrong, because they talked about unfettered growth, and I think that's really an inappropriate phrase, and, and Richard Pring now acknowledges that. <coughs> I think it's critical to discuss the criteria associated with introducing any element, although in, into the admissions process, but here we're talking about admissions tests, but I think these criteria apply more generally. Use something new or introduce something new on the basis that um, it is actually developed in conjunction with higher education. An assessment must make a unique contribution to the admissions process. There's no point in measuring something and judging the same thing twice. It shouldn't replicate previous and concurrent assessments. And any assessment must yield valid information. I'll come on to that in a second. And that that issue of validity is critical. Of course there are issues around the use of any instrument, cost, burden... If it's a new instrument like an emissions test, because in some cases you have to travel to centres, that's critical. They ran out of places for one test and people were actually flying from Northern Ireland to Glasgow in order to sit their tests. Ridiculous. And school organisation is an important issue in terms of equity. If there is a specific entry decision that has to be made, the more organised schools and those with a history of understanding that a particular test has to be taken if you want entry to this particular course or subject, then those schools that are more organised will put those tests on and will encourage people to enter for them. And the less organised schools won't. And that level of organisation is unevenly distributed across the system. And so it is a fundamental issue of equity. We emphasise very strongly the importance of validation research. And, And Richard Partington and I were just discussing that. We've seen so many tests emerge where people have written them with good intent but have no intention of actually undertaking any evaluation of their measurement characteristics. And, of course, the utility of all of these things we must question. And we often say uh, in the uh, emissions test and special test unit, which is responsible for the tests here, that if it can be shown that sophisticated analyses of the kind that we have not yet sorted out but could devise and could be done on existing qualifications data we would shut up shop and actually no longer encourage people to to use our admissions test. If you could get higher predictive validity out of the use of pre-existing data, we would no longer run the tests that we do. Validity is critical and associated with utility. So that's why we do validation research. And at the moment, um, you know, that validation research tells us we should continue with the instruments that we've got using the criteria which are on uh, on the previous slide. Duplication is a, is a critical point. But again, many of the unsophisticated analyses of admissions tests make a fundamental error, which is if, if you're applying for history, you're probably not going to be applying for engineering and chemistry as well at different institutions. And if you are, you probably shouldn't be. So, in fact, people are probably only going to face one test anyway. And the exception at the moment is BMAT and UK CAT. Um, and I want to finish on this, really. I, th- I mean, I think those, those criteria have to be taken extremely seriously. Um, 
but within this issue, there lies an awful lot. Um, there is a tremendously unsophisticated debate currently about equity in respect of university admissions. Terribly unsophisticated. And unfortunately, it often relates to um, commentators and indeed policymakers who should know better just looking at the composition of the population in schools and the composition of the population being admitted to higher education institutions and saying they're not the same, therefore there must be inequalities in the system. But I'm sorry, that just does not follow. Because you actually have to look at predictive validity. You have to look at the tensions between maintaining a balanced entry and selecting those most likely to succeed on the course. If there are segments of our education system in which people are achieving more and which better prepare them for university, it is perverse to actually insist on institutions selecting from other, other than people from, from that, other than that population. Now, one of our, what happens when we look at the data associated with our tests, they say, well, look, my goodness, we start to use your test and suddenly gender, we've got a shift towards boys. We use your test and we've got a shift towards independent schools. Okay, so obviously the test is biased. No, not obviously at all. That's just looking at the, the distributions associated with the outcomes of the test and the general distribution of the population. If you then go on to do what we do, which is look at predictive validity, we find that the scores derived from those tests remain the best predictor of outcomes once the people are on the course. And that says it all. What we're looking at is difference and not bias. Those tests are picking up genuine differences within the subject population, the, the, the population of learners. And that really is critical, and so much in terms of equity flows from that. So, in essence, the conclusion is no magic bullet. I think it's right to retain sophisticated processes of judgment. There is no, as it were, irrational or unfettered growth in instruments. There is legitimate anxiety for those instruments which are being devised locally with people who have no assessment expertise nor are intending to validate them in any way. That is an issue. Uh, but what we have to resolve is the, the underpinnings the technical underpinnings, the theoretical underpinnings, and the practical utility of the complex judgmental process, which I believe should lie at the heart of HE admissions. Paul. Thanks, Tim. <clears throat> I'd like now to welcome and to introduce to you Janet Graham. Uh, Janet is the director of the Supporting Professionalism in Admissions programme, which she's joined in May 2006. Uh, before that, she was the head of the University of Cambridge Admissions Office, and you've also worked in admissions at University of Leicester, I believe. Um, Janet was uh, a member of the steering group that supported Stephen Schwartz's admissions uh, to higher education review, which I believe led to the establishment of the Supporting Professionalism in Admissions Process programme. So, Janet, thank you. Again, um, there are lots of experts in the room here, and this is really a very general introduction to... Um, issues around uh, competitive admissions and most of my focus today will be on an issue that's had quite a lot of coverage uh, recently which is to do with <coughs> contextual data and the use uh, within uh, admissions process in the most uh, <coughs> general way including widening participation recruitment as well as decision making. So um, as was said SPA was uh, set up in 2006 and uh, 
One of the issues uh, that came out of the, the Schwartz report on fair admissions, there were about 16 recommendations, and a lot of them um, were the result of discussion about admissions to competitive courses. And, and I think I'll stick to competitive courses rather than even departments, because I think it, it varies uh, considerably. Um, so we are an, an independent organisation that's funded by all of the UK HE funding councils and um, our report to a steering group which includes um, higher education institutions, government departments, schools, colleges um, and various representative bodies including of course UCAS and also uh, uh, bodies such as the Higher Education Academy. And we are a resource for institutions in taking forward good practice and professionalism in what they do. I'll I'll try that instead. There you go. Um, (coughs) Again, the the five principles that came out uh, of the Fair Admissions uh, Report, a number of them cover things that we're doing, uh, uh, the work that we're taking forward at SPA. And I suppose the one that's most relevant for today's discussion is uh, using assessment methods that are valid and reliable, which has already been touched on uh, today. Um, so what are we doing to actually support universities? Um, we do a number of conferences, we have websites, we have publications. I have our a news, newsletter here today. Um, and we're uh, undergoing an external evaluation at the moment um, so that there will be some findings to see whether we are actually making a difference in higher education. So, and I hope we are. We know that our uh, website and our good practice statements are very well used. But our two key themes, we have a number of objectives um, over the, the, uh, the, the life of the programme. Uh, the two main ones are the applicant experience strategy, which I'll touch on briefly if there's time, um, and contextual data as two key, t- key themes underpinning the, the work that we're doing. Um, and we do work closely with other organisations, including the QAA, the funding councils, government departments uh, and UCAS, uh, and of course, most importantly, with higher education institutions. So what I thought I'd do is put a little bit of the context here, and I know things have changed since last week, but uh, some of these things are carrying on despite, despite that. Um, so I will give you a, a sort of a background on where we are uh, nationally, uh, as well as some of the things that we're doing in SPA. So I think one of the things where uh, uh, there is progress being made is the National Council for Educational Excellence um, and the Higher Education Ambassadors Group, which continues to meet And one of the key things that they're looking at at the moment is contextual data. They had a presentation before Easter, for example, by um, Tony Hall from the University of Bristol uh, and the research that they've done uh, in in Bristol on contextual data. And they've asked me to do a a summary of where we're at uh, in SPA and, and nationally on contextual data at their meeting at the end of this month. But from that group came um, the uh, Realising Opportunities Project of 13 uh, research-intensive universities, a mixture of institutions from the 94 group and the Russell group, looking at um, a variety of interventions uh, for motivation and support of potential students to higher education from uh, uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. And one of the elements in there will be uh, what additional data can be used to help support that work. Um, as well as uh, mutual recognition of of access and and, and compact arrangements that they have. Um, And SPAR, although it's not involved directly in that group, will be working to share what works, the methodology that comes out over the uh, two years of the project as it progresses. 
uh, <coughs> of the two main reports, I think Unleashing Aspirations, the one that came out uh, last July, uh, and Fair Access uh, to the Professions, had a lot more in it about uh, if you're going to have fair access to the professions, you need to think about how you're admitting students to higher education in the first place. Um, and if you wanted to um, look at uh, universities as engines for social change, uh, there, there is work that, that, that still can be done in that area. Um, and one of the uh, recommendations, of the very many recommendations that was accepted by the last government uh, in January this year, was uh, that institutions should take into account the educational and social context of uh, pupils' achievement. Uh, although it is, of course, by law, universities to determine and have responsibility for their own admissions procedures. Now, much of, the, uh, of the, this, uh, these recommendations were taken up in the the higher ambitions, uh, the future of universities in the knowledge economy. Um, and I think that has had, um, although it, it was uh, obviously the, the Labour government's view of the future, um, I think a lot of the things in there um, will be signed up to by uh, uh, whatever government uh, is in place. And as it's a coalition government, one of the things that uh, has certainly come out in the last uh, couple of days is issues to do with fairness. So uh, I think there are, uh, uh, and, and social justice or social mobility. Uh, and so I think these, a number of the issues in there might have a different slant or a different flavour, but a, a, a number of them, I believe, will, will continue uh, 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 under the current uh, regime. And indeed, the university sector uh, itself has, uh, is, is looking at a number of issues that uh, affect how uh, institutions may do their admissions. Um, and Universities UK has uh, two of its um, five priorities that impact on admissions. Again, one is uh, the social mobility agenda, including, very importantly, the pre-student experience, information, advice and guidance um, and 14 to 19 curriculum. And linked to that, and I think there will be increasingly uh, greater links between uh, what institutions are doing. We've seen the development of the uh, widening participation strategic assessments in England, um, looking at how uh, aspects of institutional policy and strategy uh, can be more integrated um, and uh, certainly form part of the quality offering that an institution is um, is um, able to offer to students. And, of course, it does have an impact on institutional reputation uh, if quality and uh, uh, professionalism is seen not to be um, working. But I think one of the things that, that, um, uh, that, that does need to happen and hopefully will continue to happen is that the sector as a whole communicates better what it's doing in a number of these areas and uh, you know, seminars like this do help contribute to that. So how, how do, do people go about this? Um, I mean, there, there are many institutions who have, do have 50,000 applications for 3,500 places, um, and they have to take so many things into consideration when they're making their decisions. Um, they are uh, looking at widening participation. They are you know, looking at what is happening nationally in terms of policy initiatives. Um, and they are very keen to make sure that their own institutional mission and strategy is taken forward while maintaining academic standards and, of course, quality teaching and learning experience. So, um, and that's just a summary of many, of many of the other things that they have to do as well. So holistic assessment, which was something that was certainly highlighted in the uh, Schwartz report, 
is an area that I think is not going to go away and is increasingly difficult for institutions to do because of the complexity uh, and um, the numbers involved in the admissions um, uh, process these days as well as the issues to do with widening participation um, and uh, uh, maintaining standards. So in terms of uh, looking at contextual data, there are many things that comprise contextual data and we've already heard about how admissions tests can be used as part of admissions decision making. Additional information may be asked for by institutions about, about the applicant, uh, additional pieces of work might be asked for from the applicant. Um, institutions will look at skills and competencies of the applicant. Information that is in addition to what they get through through UCAS Apply. And of course, we're not just talking here about, I mean, we are mainly today talking about undergraduate admissions, but these issues also apply to admissions to part-time. You know, there are differences because of the, the applicant body is, is so diverse these days, far more mature students applying. <coughs> you know, all of these things add to the mix and complexity for institutions. And what they have to be doing is needs to be made clear to those people both within their own institution as to how it relates to the institution's mission strategy, uh, their widening participation strategic assessment, um, but also to the outside world, of course, through things like course search, entry profiles, university websites, um, conferences, uh, HE fairs, etc. The whole gamut of IAG in terms of information on how to, about how to choose a course, but then uh, information about uh, what are the mechanisms that the institutions use to decide who to admit onto the course. And, of course, that is, uh, varies from course to course, uh, not just department to department or institution to institution. And uh, all of this uh, is, uh, contributes to the whole applicant experience strategy, which uh, I won't have time to go into today, but uh, would certainly be uh, worthy of another uh, session. So some of the work that we've been doing in looking at um, how is contextual data used, um, and it is used in, in very many ways, and has, if this is not a new, this is nothing new. Contextual data has been used by universities for years and years. It's just now got a new name, I think, and, uh, and there is more um, focus, if you like, on how institutions are using it, and they uh, are themselves um, looking to do their own uh, assessment review um, of the uh, validity and reliability of what they're doing. And uh, we'll touch on that later in the, in the, in the second presentation. Um, information is being used as to decide who to interview, how admissions, uh, uh, how to help inform the admissions decision-making, whether to make a student an offer or not. Um, a number of institutions are also using uh, information uh, during the admissions process to try and help identify those learners who may need extra support once they arrive at the university, again part of the applicant experience. Uh, data is used for uh, looking at eligi eligibility for bursaries and financial support. And, of course, there's a lot of data that's always been used by institutions, uh, not necessarily as part of the actual admissions decision-making process, but has always been used for uh, statistical and qualitative um, monitoring and reporting purposes. And uh, that's perhaps something that uh, some institutions have uh, been less good at um, compared to some others. So... We developed a number of principles in the use of contextual data which were actually approved by the SPA steering group uh, just before Easter and will be on our website shortly. 
and um, these have been um, uh, brought together by discussions with higher education institutions, with um, uh, UCAS, with um, uh, the, the, the members of the SPA steering group, and um, cover things that you would expect them to cover. Uh, if you are going to be using uh, da data, is it research-based? Is it evidence-based? How can you justify its use? A bit, a bit I mean, it's, it's not too, too different from, from the use of admissions tests and the, and the reliability and validity there. How is it being used to add value um, to the admissions decision-making process? Um, how can it be used to improve inclusivity? Uh, it doesn't mean, fairness doesn't necessarily mean that all applicants to be, should be treated the same. Uh, it just means that they should be treated fairly and the different factors affecting those individuals should be considered where they are available. And all of this needs to be more transparent to uh, advisors and applicants, uh, as well as staff within institutions. In addition, I think, again, regular monitoring of the use of data and related um, Audit trails should be integral to all of this, uh, and you know, this, is, this is something that most institutions are, are doing already. Um, there are a lot of issues around contextual data, um, and uh, as I say, the whole process of admissions is getting more complicated, um, and so the, the professionals who are, and the experts who are using this data, are um, increasingly have to keep themselves up to date with developments and also be much more familiar with data analysis and research methodology and using that to, uh, to support what they do. Um, and again, as part of the applicant experience, this, this, these things are not seen in isolation. This is a holistic approach. There is no one piece of contextual data on its own that will say yes or no as to whether the applicant gets uh, an offer or an interview. It is in conjunction with the whole of the UCAS application uh, and other data that the institution may have. And, and that is part of uh, the, the process of uh, application and transition into university. But of course there are lots of issues around uh, the use of data uh, and these are, are, will be no surprise to people working in education, uh, particularly as of course if we're talking about um, uh, competitive courses, they are on the whole those courses that attract applications UK-wide and internationally. Um, so there will be students applying for competitive courses from all parts of the United Kingdom, where there are now very different data sets available about uh, students at the schools they're from and their progression to higher education, uh, as well as internationally. Um, UCAS, for example, holds numbers of applicants per school. DCS holds cohort size. In Scotland, they have information on progression to higher education. Different administrations have different things uh, that are uh, available um, uh, either to their own administrations uh, and hopefully more widely. And SPA has held meetings throughout the UK now uh, with the different administrations looking at what data could be made more widely available for institutions to use. And uh, there is a, a slight slowdown at the moment, as you'd expect, with, uh, with the PERDA before uh, the election and uh, uh, whatever is happening as we speak in the different departments throughout the UK at, at the moment. Um, but this is something that we are uh, continuing to work on and uh, uh, I think is important for the whole of the higher education sector to make sure that we are using data that's available, which is comparative and reliable. 
Um, of course, a lot of the data that is available to institutions from UCAS is uh, uh, data that's been available for many, many years, but is mainly self-declared by um, um, the applicants themselves. For example, GCSEs or um, standard grade qualifications are declared by the applicant um, and are not verified. Now, there are ways that that can be done by having links through, possibly through MyApp, the managing information across partners or through UCAS. That information is being put on the uh, pupil learner record and should be made available, we hope, one day by UCAS to institutions. It will actually save the uh, applicants writing it on the, uh, typing it in online and, and help them in actually speeding up their application process. So there's lots of things that, that could happen in the future to actually make these things easier um, to, uh, to the applicant, which is a key part, as well as to the institution. Um, lots of things that are being collected at the moment, and progression from care, the question on the application form at UCAS is uh, revised on a, on a regular basis. I hope that we will get to the, the, uh, a satisfactory question this year. Um, whether there should be information about educational maintenance allowances collected. There's a, a, lot, a lot of things still are being talked about and debated. Um, information that schools would like to tell institutions about, which they haven't got room to do on the current application. Um, and whether there is a possibility that if they... Uh, if a student is applying for a variety of courses which have a variety of entry requirements, whether they should be able to, if they wish to, um, provide more information that is uh, definitely about how that applicant relates to that particular course. Uh, issues there, I think, in terms of uh, the UCAS reference uh, and what the, the student says in their personal statement. Um, the focus on school data doesn't identify individual disadvantage. All of these things have to be taken in a holistic way. No single thing on its own uh, is sufficient to make a, a decision. Um, there are lots of issues, of course, of the fact that increasingly, particularly this is an issue in Scotland and, and no doubt will be with the new advanced diplomas uh, in, the, in, the, in England, that students may take their post 16 qualifications in a number of different centres. How do you then work out um, if there are, has been any particular disadvantage to the student pre-16 or in the various institutions that they're attending, attending post-16? So there's lots of issues there as well. Um, this is all <coughs> costing institutions um, uh, in terms of time and effort. Is there a way of making this, uh, rather than every individual institution doing it, whether there can be some uh, slightly more centralised or coordinated way of providing this in information to institutions to make uh, the process easier for both the applicant and the institution? And, of course, IT issues, uh, any big organisation, uh, government departments in particular, are not renowned for the robustness of their IT systems um, and the data that they record. And I think there's a lot of issues there in terms of data quality and transferability if we're looking at what data institutions can use and, and whether that data can be formatted. For example, if data is to be supplied via UCAS, how can it be formatted and matched in a meaningful way that is, can be used by institutions to help support the admissions decision-making? So there are a lot of, a, a lot of issues there. Um, but one of the, uh, we've been discussing this with a, a, a lot of institutions and a, a preliminary list of, of, of data that, uh, that uh, institutions would like has um, 
been devised. This is not um, the be-all and end-all. Um, there, there will be other things to be dis debated and discussed. Some things may not be available. Uh, other things that we haven't thought of yet may be available. And again, we have to do this across the UK because competitive courses are getting applicants from across the UK. We haven't yet looked at uh, contextual data from elsewhere. Uh, I think that is, uh, 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 you know, start, start at home first and then, then work out. But these are the sort of things that, that have been suggested uh, as possible um, Information that will help in determining or assisting those institutions in um, making decisions for competitive courses. Uh, I won't go into these in any great detail uh, now, um, but I'm sure we can have some questions about these later. Uh, next. Okay. I won't go into this now, but I think a lot of what we've been doing links to an applicant uh, experience strategy which we've devised uh, as, as a helpful framework, we hope, which has four sections to it, which, uh, uh, in which contextual data links through all of these from pre-application, application, post-application post and transition and enrolment, where the applicant hopefully goes smoothly through the system and is uh, registered, uh, is retained and graduates from the institution. But there are very many factors that are affecting this whole strategy. And uh, these include all of the things that the institution does, as well as what happens outside the institution in terms of uh, things like HE fairs, etc. All of these are um, affecting the whole applicant experience and the, the applicant decision-making process. Um, and, and, of course, all of this is linked to academic provision at the institution uh, that underpins everything. The whole point is admitting students to a course that is uh, for which they have the potential and, uh, and hopefully the ability to succeed. So other things that are impinging on uh, decision-making uh, in admissions, um, the huge range of changes that's happening at the moment in uh, 14 to 19 and 16 to 19 education throughout the UK. Um, and uh, this, this makes it complicated to not only make things transparent when things are changing rapidly, um, and I know institutions are working hard to do that, um, but it also means it's complicated for those people making decisions um, when they are looking at a variety of qualifications, um, not just A-levels or IB, uh, etc., and I thought an interesting fact, of course, that, that came out uh, at a conference I was at uh, just before Easter was that only 49% of applicants through UCAS have uh, one or more A-levels as part of their qualifications for entry to higher education uh, these days. So the, the diversity in, in uh, the admissions decision-making process is, is, is increasing. Um, the, the use of the UCAS tariff, I've not really concentrated that much on that here because it's not used that much by selecting institutions. Um, in fact, I think uh, from some stats that UCAS did last year, um, if you looked at uh, the Russell Group and the 94 Group, uh, the, the percentage-making offers um, using the tariff was uh, under 10%. Um, and it was much, obviously much greater for other types of institutions. <coughs> but again, that was by institution type. Uh, it didn't go down to competitive courses. Okay, uh, keeping up to date with qualifications. <coughs> Excuse me. 
In addition to all of these is the changing um, policy initiatives which are continuing in terms of uh, more uh, flexible routes into higher education, part-time, work-based learning and other ways of accessing higher education which are also affecting uh, admissions to competitive courses. Um, <coughs> briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on the A-star other than to say that um, uh, Tim touched on it briefly. Um, uh, it's the first year this year and we shall, we shall wait and see. Uh, but there are some issues, I think, that, uh, that, that need to be uh, looked at. Um, and, and the NCEE did recommend that HEIs don't use A-star for entry uh, but a number of universities did publish uh, quite clearly that they were going to do so, and there was a, a very brief uh, survey that was done uh, in April about 2011. Obviously, institutions are still making up their minds uh, in terms of how they're going to publish information for 2011 uh, within the next uh, uh, few months for 2011 entry on the A-star uh, as to whether they're going to use it or not. And there are issues to do with... Um, predicting a star with confidence uh, if schools predict it will HEIs use it and and I think one of the other issues is that the a star is part of the UCAS tariff this year so those institutions who do use tariff offers if the student gets an a star that obviously is going to be counted as part of the tariff um, uh, and there are lots of issues for HEIs in, in, in looking at issues around uh, not just A-star, but other new qualifications uh, and progression to higher education. So what next? Um, we all know that there's, a, there's a, a huge rise in the number of applications for, uh, for this year. Is this the start of a new era for applications to, to HE? Uh, you know, what will happen when the economy comes out of recession uh, in terms of admissions to higher education for full-time courses, because by then maybe there will be a, a wider range of courses available for students uh, with flexible entry. What will happen to the HE framework? Will more contextual data be made available nationally? Um, I've just come back from a, a, a visit to uh, the USA and Australia and concur with some of the things that Tim said, that there are an awful lot of things... Uh, going on out there that we can learn from uh, and, and in terms of contextual data and how that's being used for admissions decision making and it is being used for admissions decision making uh, overseas um, it's not necessarily called contextual data but the same issues have uh, applied there for high demand courses for, for, for as ever as, as they have here um, and uh, uh, the work that I've done there is, uh, is in the process of being written up and hopefully will be uh, out in the public domain before too long. There are a lot of issues to do with the diversity of devolution and the complexities that brings to, to the admissions decision-making process. There's the unknown quantity of the, the Brown review of tuition fees, uh, which hopefully there will be some more information about in the next couple of weeks. What will be the impact on admissions there? Um, the new Equalities Act that came into force in April, uh, there will be issues in there that affect, no doubt, admissions uh, and equality and diversity aspects. Uh, and, of course, the continuing impact of 14 to 19 curriculum developments. So um, a very brief overview, and I, and I know hopefully are some more specifics now um, in our next speaker. Thank you. Thanks very much, Janet. I'm very glad you could get to the end of that presentation.
Um, now it's my pleasure to welcome and to introduce to you Dr. Robert Wilkins. Um, Robert is the coordinator for admissions in medicine at the University of Oxford. Um, and he's the director of the new Biomedical Sciences course, which starts in October 2011. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that you've spent your entire academic career at Oxford, from graduating in um, physiology in uh, 1990, to your current role as American Fellow in Physiology. So, Robert, over to you. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, given the general health status of everybody who's talking this afternoon, perhaps, thank you, this seminar should have been sponsored by LEMSIP or something, but I, I hope my vo voice will, uh, will hold up for the next 25 minutes or so. So I'm a university lecturer in physiology, in epithelial physiology, so I lecture about kidneys, but in my spare time I'm currently the coordinator for admissions in medicine for the division, and so I oversee admissions in medicine and currently in physiological sciences, and obviously from this coming Christmas for the new course in biomedical sciences. And what I thought I'd do today was to tell you what we do now and try to explain to you how we got to the current uh, position that we use, the model that we use for shortlisting and selecting our medicine applicants. So this is where we are. We have 150 places for our preclinical course. We have a, a, a conventional course, a 3 plus 3 course, whereby... We admit students initially for preclinical medicine and three years later we have a separate admissions exercise for the clinical school. But we're allowed by the government to train 150 doctors a year. So we have 150 places for people coming on to the preclinical course and in recent times we've been getting greater than 1,000 applicants. In fact, last Christmas we had something like 1,440 legitimate applications, so people who uh, went through the application process correctly and registered and sat, registered for and sat the tests that we now use. What we do is to do a pretty radical, pretty drastic triage, shortlisting exercise, and we shortlist, we interview 425 applicants, and we select those 425 on primarily on the basis of two pieces of data that are available to us. One is GCSE star, A star data, which is available for the majority, but obviously not all of our applicants. And the other piece of information we use is the BMAT score, the test administered for us uh, uh, on our behalf by Cambridge Assessment. And I think it's worth pointing out here that that's the only piece of information that is available for every applicant every person, all of those 1,440 applicants. That's the only piece of information that we have that is common to them all. It's not a, it's not a, a mechanical process. Uh, it's not a, a completely automated process, that shortlisting. Yes, there is an algorithm, there is an equation, but there's also, as you'll see a bit later on, a quite a, a large degree of human input into the shortlisting to make sure that it's a fair and balanced process. And what we now do is we give interviews to the 425 shortlisted applicants at two colleges, so uh, both the college to which they applied and a second college, and I'll explain the thinking behind that a little later on. And we do those interviews college-blind, so the college tutors, the system, are not, av not aware of the college to which the applicant applied at the time that they are interviewing them. And as a result of that, 
we have proportional and balanced shortlists. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that all colleges are interviewing a number of applicants which reflects the number of places available. So if a college has got eight places, it's going to be interviewing twice as many people as a college that has only got four places. What do I mean by balanced? Well, because we've got this uh, allocation of applicants to a second college in addition to the college to which they applied, we can actually even up the strength of the college uh, shortlist so we can make sure that really, as to, the, to the greatest extent that we can, that college choice and the college at which you're interviewed really has no <coughs> impact on your chances of getting in. It doesn't depend on the number of places available and it doesn't depend on the strength of uh, if you happen to have applied in a year where the applicant pool to that college is especially strong. So that's where we are. The question is, how do we get there? I think if we want to understand how we got there, we need to go back and look at the situation that faced us in the late 1990s. And then we had increasing numbers of applicants. Application numbers were certainly on on the way up, they weren't anywhere near the levels they are now, but we, we did have high numbers, sort of 700 applicants a year, and at that time the school was admitting about 110 students each year. We had the situation where most applicants were being interviewed, and it was certainly the case that there was a long, in some years, very long tail. We do in Oxford our interviews over a two-week window for all subjects across the colleges. So all colleges are interviewing in this two-week window for all the subjects. So each subject has really a very fixed time frame in which to interview. We had just two and a half days in which to process all these applicants and try to do them justice and appraise their suitability. We had the problem of over- and undersubscribed colleges for various reasons. Some colleges were more popular than others and... To some extent, I think uh, students, applicants were playing the numbers game. If they saw a college had six places, they thought they had more chance of getting in. And so we would see these wild fluctuations in uh, applicant numbers as students played the game. They applied to a college that appeared to have lots of places. Of course, the success rate in that college went, uh, was, went down as many of them failed to get in. So the following year, they'd apply somewhere else. So we had these, these, these fluctuations in... In, in college application numbers. We had unbalanced shortlists, weak college lists, um, uh, long, uh, strong college lists. And we had a really unreliable redistribution system. We had a sort of horse training system where we had buying colleges and selling colleges. Um, you probably know. You can imagine the meeting at which that occurred. It was not a particularly pleasant experience, and many of us left that meeting each year, feeling that it had not been entirely satisfactory. So the catalysts for change were medical tutor dissatisfaction, as I've just said, frustration, really, that we couldn't get at the heart of who ought to get in, we didn't have enough time, our lists seemed to fluctuate in their quality, um, and a real desire that we wanted to change things. We introduced the Oxford Medical Admissions Test, really, as a selection aid around that time, around the late 1990s, and we started work on the development of the BMAT, uh, along with colleagues in Cambridge and London, and really um, OMAT and the Cambridge equivalent, the uh, MVAT, um, joined together to become BMAT uh, in 2003. 
We had the expansion of the medical school going up from, as I said, around 112 to 150 offers, uh, the 2000, and 2000 exercise, 2001 entry. And that really was a daunting prospect for us, given what I've said about um, application numbers and trying to shoehorn these applicants in. Subsequent work by Cambridge Assessment on BMAT has shown is that the likelihood of getting a place and later on-course progression were best predicted by two pieces of data, the A-star, the proportion of GCSEs at A-star, and the test score. And that is really the reason why the process that we have was founded using um, those two pieces of data. So the new approach that we introduced for the 2003 exercise, which was associated with the introduction of the BMAT, was to create a ranking score, which at the outset was known as the log odds, for the reason that the analysis had looked at the odds, um, which was the probability, essentially this equation P over 1 minus P, where P was the probability of gaining a place based on the analyses that had been done since 1997. And it was calculated using normalised BMAT score, where the sections, the three sections of BMAT, were initially given equal section weightings, and the normalised PA star. And the best predictor at the outset was to weight the normalised BMAT and the normalised PA star in the ratio of 2 to 1. And so that was what was used in 2003. And what we did with that process was we automatically shortlisted. We ranked everybody, we got everybody a score, and we took the top 385 on that basis. And then we sent all the information about the remaining people not automatically shortlisted out to college tutors who reviewed the UCAS forms, uh, looked at the personal statements and so forth, and, and the references, and came back with a flagging list of those unshortlisted applicants that they believe may have been disadvantaged by the algorithm that we had used. So examples of things that could be disadvantageous would be no GCSEs, not having GCSEs so that we have to instead rely exclusively on a BMAT score, or having high numbers of GCSEs, where a school may have put a candidate in for a very high number, a large number of the qualifications, and therefore the fraction, the proportion, may uh, be dragging down the student's, um, uh, the, the contribution of, of PA star to the, to the ranking score. Illness at BMAT is another possibility, something that could have compromised the BMAT score. And disrupted education, so having a school where there were five physics teachers in a year or having to keep moving um, schools or potentially having had a large part of your GCSE uh, time in school disrupted by ill health of the student themselves. And on the basis of that, a, a committee met and looked at about 100 students that came through this process from the <coughs> colleges and selected an additional 40 applicants and, and thereby created the shortlist of 425. And as I said, the applicants were shortlisted to be seen at two colleges, the college to which they applied and a second assigned college, a college that we uh, gave them in the medical school. And the shortlist at each college was created such that it had the same ratio of applicants to places, which is about 5.7. So in other words, it's essentially 425 divided by 150 times 2, because there are two interviews. 
and that gives you 5.7-ish. And the allocation to the second college allowed us to create lists that were balanced in terms of the ranking strength. So if the mean ranking of one college was quite high, then the students that would be given to them for the second interview would be relatively lower, uh, and vice versa. If the college, the students that had got through this triage at a second college um, were relatively low in the ranking list, additional students that were strong would be put onto the list. And so by doing that, as I said, we hoped that advantage from college choice, so the number of places and the strength of the cohort would be removed, giving everybody an equal chance, notwithstanding the college that were appraising them. So the interviews are conducted blind. They're conducted blind of college choice and also college uh, and of BMAT score. And after the interviews have taken place, at the end of the exercise, applicants are ranked. Say, if there are 28 applicants from 1 to 28, and they're ranked solely on the basis of the information on the UCAS form and on the basis of the interview. The rankings are submitted, and then the colleges uh, re-rank the the students. They're given the list back and asked if they wish to change their ranking after being informed of the other colleges' impression uh, of of the applicant and the BMAT score. And that information is fed back to the medical school, and then there's a central allocation of the highest available candidates to colleges. So since that process was set up, we've done some ongoing development work. We've continued to analyse admission success, the likelihood of gaining a place, and we've continued to do on-course progression. And the further, of course, this goes on, the more on-course progression data we have. And the first thing we did, which was very shortly after introducing it, was in 2004, we changed the BMAT section weights. So we down-weighted section two. And the reason we did that was that we had a slight reason to believe from the analysis of the 2003 uh, cohort that students that were doing maths and physics um, at school at A level seemed to be advantaged with section two. That was our impression at the time. So to be on the safe side, we downweighted section two. And that's how things stayed with this 40 20 40 weighting and BMAT being given twice as much uh, weight as GCSE PA star until 2008, when we undertook essentially a five-year review of, of what we had done. And at that stage, we made a number of changes. The first was we took the BMAT section weights and we altered them again to 40, 40, 20, because we found that really there was little reason to believe that section three, the essay, was a predictor, and there was really strong reason to believe that section two was actually a very good predictor, especially of our on-course progression. The second thing we did was we moved to use something called the ZPA star value rather than the PA star value. And we had always provided tutors with the ZPA star value, but we took the decision to actually use it in our shortlisting exercise. And the ZPA uh, value is a value which enables us to place the GCSE score, the PA star, in the context of the school at which the GCSEs were taken. So for schools in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, as we've heard, one of the pieces of information that's available is this 5A star to C uh, score value. 
And what we can do is for all those candidates, we can plot for each candidate on a graph the 5A star to C, and we can plot the PA star of that applicant against their 5A star to C. So we can throw all the, say, 1,000 applicants for whom we have that data onto the graph, and we can do a regression. We can get a fit, a Y equals MX plus C line, which tells us the relationship for the application cohort in that year um, between PA star and school 5A star to C. And then what we can do is we can look at any given applicant. So I pick one here at a school where the 5A star to C is 0.75, and they've got nearly perfect proportion of A stars. So they are above the prediction here. They have a higher PA star than the population fit would predict, and that difference, what we call the residual, can be analysed against the standard deviation of the uh, GCSE performance of the cohort to give us this Z-score. And because we had done analysis that showed us that ZPA star, which had always existed but hadn't been really used, it was just a piece of information, that ZPA star was a better predictor of Section 2 performance than PA star, we started to use it instead. We also, at the time, changed the weighting between the BMAT and the ZPA to give equal weight to the two parameters. The normalised BMAT and the ZPA were given equal weight. And we made one more tweak, which was to make the college blinding go all the way through to the allocation of places, which was a small change, but a change that we felt really then meant that we could genuinely say that college choice was at no point in the admissions exercise um, a factor which could uh, be considered to be in any way a selection criterion. So to wind up, there are some challenges to this approach. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a labour-intensive approach because although there's an algorithm and there's a computer that churns out ranking scores, there's an awful lot of of manual analysis that has to be done, checking uh, that, that, say, for example, GCSEs have all been done in the same year and not sort of three and three in one year and five in the next. Um, there's a lot of checking that the school at which the GCSE um, G GCSEs were taken maps across to the 5A star to C data that we're using. But I think one of the, the most challenging things for this process since 2003 has been that it is actually really quite a complicated process to convey to applicants. And undoubtedly, it's potentially off-putting. Um, however, I think we've done quite a good job. This, these, these are the data for the admissions exercises since 2001 until 2009, last Christmas. And you can see in green at the top here the total number of applicants. This is the reason why we did what we did. It was just climbing and climbing and climbing. And we get to 2003, and the year after, we see a bit of a fallback as the sort of reality of the desummoning process that we'd brought in, the shortlisting process, hit home. And it obviously did, in the short term, put applicants off. There's another minor blip here, which I think had something to do with um, perhaps a lack of... Uh, publicity that we did for the medical school in that particular year. But you can see that now our applications are growing again very healthily. There's, a, um, there's been a, a small increase in applications from uh, the independent sector, a quite large increase in applicants from the state sector. And we're also seeing 
um, a real trend for an enhancement in international applicants. And as, as I'll just point out in a minute, that is actually um, somewhat problematic for us. So another challenge, I think the challenge is around the ZPA data or the use of PA star data at all, really. We've got increased numbers without GCSE, especially those international students. We've got a lack of 5A star to C data for Scotland, which is making the analysis of Scottish applicants um, for the shortlisting process um, slightly more difficult than it used to be. And we've also got the increasing use of IGCSE. Now, the problem with IGCSE schools is that they still tend to be given a 5A star to C number, but it tends to look horrendous because there are very few students who are doing that, um, that just GCSEs and achieving the five, just 5A star to C at GCSE because they're all doing IGCSE. So that can tend to produce anomalous ZPA values. It can make students coming from um, good schools doing IGCSEs look to have really, really outperformed their school because the school has got a very low apparent 5A star to C. So this is another manual check that we've had to put in place to make sure that actually we're usually looking for disadvantage. In this case, we're looking for advantage. And really, with all these problems and many other things, we have a reliance on BMAT to give us information if the GCSE data is not there. And we really rely on the flagging process. We rely on the tutors looking very carefully at the, at the, um, the UCAS uh, forms, the UCAS data, reading the references. Uh, we have a big job to do to encourage schools to uh, refer referees to put this relevant information at the margin that, that we need for flagging into those references. And we have a big job, an administrative job in the medical school, going through these forms manually, one by one, to check that this shortlisting approach we're using is not disadvantaging applicants. The final thing, of course, that's happened is that we've got a great many more applicants disappointed very early on. Uh, we have big demands on us now for feedback. Last Christmas, we essentially didn't interview. We, we de-summoned without an interview 1,000 people. You only need 10% of those to ask for feedback, and you've got quite a lot of cases of letters to write and and UCAS forms to pull out again. However, with the BMAT, with the ZPA data, it's very easy to do feedback because we can simply say, you came 750th in our ranking exercise, you needed to be much higher up to be in a, in a position in which we could have offered you an interview. We have reason to believe that with the academic track record and the score you got at BMAT, you would have not made a competitive case for a place. So, this approach has created lots of feedback, but the use of the test and the analyses that we've done enable us to pretty much pretty firmly rebut most of the uh, re re feedback that we get and to explain to people why they didn't get an interview and explain why we've done what we've done. So, in summary, we've got a pretty labour-intensive process, but, and we've got one that we're continuing to refine. We've not stuck with what we brought in in 2003, we're still working on it, but we've got something that does allow us, I think, to pull out 425 applicants who stand a realistic chance of gaining a place. Thank you for your attention.
This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.